Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of March 22nd, 2021. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joined again today by Josh Blank, Research Director for the same operation. How are you this now nice afternoon, Josh? I'm feeling pretty good. Looking forward to getting outside. Springtime in Austin. Always in transition. <laughs> yeah, you know, March. You don't like the weather, <laughs> etc. Um, well, last week uh, when, when we talked, we were going to get to talking about election reform. I should put that in quotation marks, I guess. Uh, the raft of legislation that is uh, accumulating in the Texas legislature, but is now beginning to move in the process and response one might argue to recent events in the in the 2020 election, but also stuff that's been building for a while. So uh, I, I thought maybe we'd do that. We can start really by kind of an you know an over an overview of the state of play um, as we sit here and record this on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, legislation was supposed to start being heard in committee yesterday in the Senate, and then was tagged by Democratic senators and. That included in the in the state affairs committee, and that included most prominently SB seven, which is the major omnibus vehicle uh, authored by Senator Brian Hughes, and the one that has the blessing and the low bill number uh, assigned by the lieutenant governor. Uh, that bill will now be heard Friday. There'll be uh, along with other election uh, related bills. In the House, they will hear HB6, which is sponsored by newly minted election chair Briscoe Kane on this Thursday. And so we have uh, uh, things are kind of coming to to a point this weekend, at least or this week, at least at this point in the process. So, you know, there there are all kinds of things and I don't want to go through every, you know, item in both of these bills and all the others. You know, I'm curious, Josh, you know, if you were to say, hey, what are the one or two that really stick out to you? You know, what are what are the election measures that that for whatever reasons, and you can tell us the reasons you really have noticed or really, you know, catch your attention? Um, I guess I'll do one specific and one general. Right. And so, I mean, the specific one that catches my attention is. Uh, the provision that would require basically, you know, some kind of documentation if someone wants to claim disability status as a as a as a reason to obtain a, a mail in vote a mail in ballot, which is one of you know again if you've followed this podcast, if you listen to this podcast, honestly, you know about this, so we don't need to go into the details of it. I just think that one sticks out to me simply because you know the politics of that seem very treacherous. You know, ultimately placing further restrictions on people with disabilities and creating a system in which, you know, the gov- you know, in which election officials are somehow responsible for 
you know, uh, certifying the disability status of people. It just, you know, I'm just, you know, again, if it were a normal session, I'd expect to see a lot of really uncomfortable legislative hearings with a lot of witnesses coming in and discussing their disability status. So, I mean, just as a politics side of that, that one seems, I understand what they were trying to do or what they are trying to do because of the perception that that provision was misused or might have, may have been. Yeah. I mean, during, during the 2020 election, when there was this big increase in mail-in voting because of the uh, the pandemic. I mean, there was a lot of discussion of just what constituted being disabled, and and very directly whether vulner, you know, the degree to which vulnerability to the virus uh, qualified as such. And there were, you know, there was motion in court. There's yeah. a lot of stuff that went on with that. And it was kind of the truth is looking. You know, and that's not to say it's a great idea, but no, I no, mean, but, but as no, a no. context, that that that. That certainly is kind of the trigger here to some well, degree. Well, you know, right? I think, you know, we'll, we'll get to this when we discuss this a little bit further here at the end. But I mean, there is a sense in which, you know, I think I think it's worthwhile, no matter what your position is on any of this stuff, to try to consider, you know, what is a good faith argument should one exist for any of these policies. And I think the idea appears what, what the pandemic uncovered with the way that mail-in ballots are conducted for people with disabilities is it's probably an under-elaborated part of the law. I think we can, you know, agree to that because ultimately it wasn't clear what counts as a disability, whether it's, you know, again, COVID wasn't clear whether, you know, if you had something that COVID could ultimately harm you through because you are an at-risk individual, is that a disability? And I think what, I mean, what I got out of all this in the election was it's not really clear what a disability is for the purpose of the election code in Texas. And well, and, and as I recall, the code had language that I think is, you know, is, is addressed in some of this legislation that said disability or... You know, and it wasn't threat to health. I'm thinking the wrong controversial issue, but but there was language about you know a perception of a threat to health that was also in there. So, you know, I mean, I you know that points to kind of a larger point that I think we'll get to. So, yeah. you know, there's a whole raft of things that are in here. I'll just right? I'll just say I mean, one other because I said I, I was given two, and I know I spent too much time talking about the one, but I'll be quick. Generally speaking, I think the other set, sets of laws or you know pr- proposals that I'm interested in are ones that I think ostensibly you could say are meant to create uniformity across the election system and across the way counties conduct elections, but probably in practice would have disparate impacts in more densely populated counties. Right. So the one you're talking about, you know, you know, so the, there's a couple of different variations of this in different bills, I think, but the, the one that I think is in SB seven calls for uniform, uniformity in early voting hours and days, that it should be from seven to seven, and if and if a locality decides to open up weekend early voting, then it also has to be seven to seven on those days. And this has been criticized, of course, you know, by by people for saying that if you are somebody that works, you know, long or late hours, that this cuts down on, uh, you know, the access of people that work late may get there particularly, you know, late in the day, and you know be banking on being able to vote after seven or extra early. So yeah, not really clear how know. this addresses fraud. Yeah. Well, there's that. <laughs> I'll just um, that alone anyway. So there's a lot, well, you know, for now, for now, for now. <laughs> um, so we'll, you know, so there's all kinds of other things that are floating around out there, but things that are in some of the big bills, you know, a prohibition on allowing local elected officials to proactively send out applications for people that are eligible to vote by mail. So if you have to, if you want to vote by mail, you have to request it. You know, it can't be, you know, the, the phrase in the, in one of the bills is the, you know, a prohibition on the solicitation of mail-in ballots. Yeah. I mean, so. I mean, a quick, a quick version of this would be, you know, think about anything that was controversial 
about the Texas, you know, about the process of Texas elections where there was conflict, whether between counties and the state or even, you know, between Republicans and the governor. And essentially there's legislation meant to address that drive through voting hours, mail in ballots, you know. Yeah. Although, you know, I think one of the things I also noticed about this is that there's also, I mean, in this kind of a, you know, there's also, you know, the level of detail, I mean, and that might even still fall under that, but the level of detail for some of these things, you know, the, you know, civil penalties for non-compliant registrars, mm. um, you know, digital ballot tracking for mail ballots, you know, it, that would be, you know, created and provided by the secretary of state. So there's also another kind of common the- theme here that brings state level authority mm-hmm. into various regulation and enforcement mechanisms. Um, you know, things like, you know, document, you know, requiring documentation from, you know, from those that are providing assistance mm-hmm. to voters that need to assist, you know, assistance, identifying who you are, you know, to pr- providing justification for you providing assistance. I think this also speaks to the, right. you know, the clamping down on, uh, frankly, on people with disabilities, um, you know, also though, you know, directly to what you say, no drive through voting. Uh, you know, there's even a, you know, a section of one of the bills that, you know, sort of prohibits the creation of temporary structures, including, you know, which which speaks to the reduction in mobile voting places we saw last time. Uh, you can't be paid to be a poll assistant, mm-hmm. no compensation, uh, you know, pretty steep punishment if you are right. caught, you know, doing things with compensation. So, you know, a whole raft of things, many of wh- many of which, again, are, are tied to what we saw, we saw last time. You know, and, and frankly, many... You know, I, I've not gone and kind of taken account because there's too much, too many provisions and too many bills. But, you know, many of these, you know, you can draw a pretty straight line to things that were done in Harris County mm-hmm. and to, a, you know, to a lesser degree, degree, Travis, but especially Harris County, mm-hmm. where, you know, they really sort of went all out there uh, to make it easier for people to vote. And, and you know, in their, you know, and I think they would argue to accommodating the pandemic situations that, you know, clearly we're on a lot of people's minds. And I say that not just because of what people said, but because of the the turn that we saw in the proportion of people that did both early and mail-in voting versus day of. Yeah. And I, and I would even go, you know, I would even say there's even a broader, you know, concern that a place like Harris County has in a state like Texas, which is, that you know, it's an extremely spread out, extremely populated and diverse county. And so ultimately, conducting elections in Harris County is going to be more difficult than in Fort Bend, right? Even though it's close, right? I mean, and, there's, and it really, and this is sort of I think the interesting thing we can kind of we'll get into this, but I mean, this is where we start to think about the impact of uniformity and whether uniformity is really something that can be, uh, and you know, and again, uniformity across the counties in Texas who ultimately administer these elections is something that can actually be achieved in, with, you know, let's say with uniform laws. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think it's an interesting question. We'll come back to, you know, the, you know, we were talking about this offline yesterday, the day before that there's a, there's a kernel of something in this uniformity argument that one can see, Mm -hmm. but you know, where the line is and in an appropriate degree of uniformity, I think is not right. You know, not, not, is is not completely obvious and, and is being played, you know, and is at play here and I, the gray areas are at play here. So, you know, I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about this, about what the likely reception of this now, you know, to step back on that, you know, there's been less so this week, but last week, um, 
you know, when the when the governor and and some of his you know chosen leaders on this, specifically Paul Bettencourt and and Briscoe Kane, held a press event to kind of roll these provisions and roll the push out last week. It was part of a lot of national coverage, and I and I think that you know the the national coverage has been you know that I've seen, and this is probably reflective of my viewing habits given where we are. But it's largely been negative in the mainstream media. And, you know, you can call that the elite media or whatever you want. But, you know, the major national audience newspapers, the major kind of networks and cable channels, you know, all were, you know, I thought fairly straightforward in looking at the proposals along these lines that are happening in dozens of states along the country, around the country, you know, generally states, or actually I shouldn't say generally, almost exclusively states with either Republican majorities in the legislature or here majorities in the legislature plus a, a Republican governor, um, you know, was was pretty critical, and and critical in a way that I think didn't didn't pause very often in a lot of the stuff that I read, other than the on the other hand paragraphs and the stories. You know, to say that, you know, there might be an, you know, an argument for this. And so, you know, we've looked at public opinion and I think, you know, public opinion helps explain that to some degree, right? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly part of the explanation, right? So, I mean, in, in our February poll, we asked people, you know, basically whether, you know, you, you know the official U.S. election results and official Texas election results are, are accurate or not, you know, and just sort of baseline, what do you think? And, you know, mimicking the national narrative, only 23% of Texas Republicans said that U.S. election results are accurate. 73% said that they are not accurate, including 52%, so a majority of Republicans who say that U.S. election results are very inaccurate. Now, surely some of this was informed by the 2020 election and, and Donald Trump's uh, defeat. Uh, it and had, his messaging about that. And defeat. his messaging about that defeat before that defeat and for much of the five years leading up to it. Right. Um, and so, but, but ultimately, you know, but I think actually that actually is almost like a walk forward and walk back to say, Hey, look, this is probably, you know, partially reflective of the moment, but also this has been baked into the cake now for, you know, at least five years, but really I would, you know, we could argue very simply for a decade plus. So it's not that far off what the baseline attitudes are. So this is kind of, you know, and you could say that it's kind of strange that we have all this activity in the space because 76% of those same Republican voters in Texas, right? Texas election results as accurate. Now, 20% still say that they're not accurate. So one in one in five. So that's still, you know, a significant number of Republicans who are skeptical of Texas election results. But ultimately, it's not as though, you know, based on perceptions of the outcome and the and the outcome being just the results, you know, right. that are reported, that Republicans think that there's much going wrong, uh, you know, at least with the end product of Texas elections. Um, so that's sort of the starting point here. Uh, but you know, and despite all this, but you know, going back to the reception, you know, either because of this, if we think about the U S results or despite it, if we think about the Texas results, the a plurality of Republicans still want voting laws made more strict in Texas, 46%, a nearly equal share. I think 44% say that the laws should be left alone, but ultimately it's not a, it's not a, an issue for Republican legislators to go and deliver on what is perceived by Republican voters to be a problem generally, even if that perception is merely a perception. Right? Yeah. And I, you know, I think in some places, you know, elsewhere in the country, there have been, you know, minor, dis- you know, minor incidents of Republican pushback. I, you know, I think that that's been most prominent in Georgia, but Georgia, you know, the Georgia uh, legislative Democrats or Republicans have also gone the furthest with, you know, with the restrictions that they're proposing 
But, you know, I, I've not seen, you know, I, I, you know, among legislative Republicans, as you know, I've not watched every moment of every hearing, but watching these hearings, there are varying degrees of interest in this. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that I've seen, you know, any instances of, of elected Republicans standing up and saying, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we got to slow down here. Well, There's just like no evidence of that. And I think the polling suggests... One of the reasons that, you know, I mean, you know, there's a chicken egg question here, but I think, you know, as you kind of imply, I think I know where the chicken is. I I, exactly. I think if you, if you go back far enough, we can find the chickens. Well, and look, I mean, we don't even need to go back that far. I mean, when we're, you know, ultimately, and we're talking about the chicken eggs that we're talking about, is this about, you know, let's just be, let's just say what we're saying here, right? Is this about, you know, people organically coming up with this idea yes. based on evidence and experience. Let us explain our rural metaphor. Yeah. Well, then, <laughs> let me get, let me get the straw out of my mouth. Hold on a second. <laughs> you know, but the idea here is, is this some sort of organic set of views that's based on experience, you know, or actual evidence of wrongdoing? Well, no, it's not. We know that it's not because there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud. Um, and so, and we know that despite this, it's been talked about, repeatedly and at the highest levels of government in particular for the last two years. I find it striking that actually in some ways to look at data like this, even though we've seen it before, so it's not striking in and of itself, but it's striking if you just consider, like if we just, I mean, you know, I hate to say it this way, but let's just take a rat, let's just step back and try to be rational for a second. And I hate saying that, but Republican elected officials, including the president using the full weight of the justice department and every Republican who has who he could find sought out voter fraud in the 2020 election. They went to court and the court said, you have no evidence. They, you know, literally Dan Patrick said, I will give someone money to provide me with evidence. I don't know how that's gone. We haven't heard back about that, but it was, it was, there was a reward, no evidence. And well, I think what we've heard is who was it? Wasn't it the Lieutenant governor or the secretary of state in Pennsylvania who said he had evidence of voter fraud. It had been committed by Republicans and, you know, maybe, you know, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, check your messages. I think he didn't really get much of a response to that. Well, yes. Well, he wasn't listening. Well, anyway, let's leave that alone. <laughs> but I mean, but this is the thing here. I mean, if, if this were in any way connected to an actual like policy problem, you would think that, you know, this long discussion we've had, this long and very public discussion that we've had about it, that's failed to actually uncover any would change people's attitudes. But ultimately, it's not really based on actual experience or actual Well, and, and, you know, I don't think I'm crazy to have noticed there has been, you know, it's almost as if the discussion after 2020 has produced a subtle shift. And I think this is, you know, I've I've spent probably the last 24 hours just trying to, you know, turning this over in my head back and forth, trying to figure out exactly. I'm excited. What I think (laughs) about this, but, but I mean, well, I don't know, but I, you know, in some ways it's obvious, but I mean, I do think there's been kind of a subtle shift as we, as we look at, this discussion, you know, we parse out, you know, all of this kind of very detailed things, more or less, in the legislation that's rolling around in the legislature right now. And this, you know, the the kind of ongoing, you know, search for, you know, the, the, the holy grail of widespread voter fraud that never shows up. You know, something else has happened in the meantime, and whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's the accumulated discussion you know, an, you know, while the voter fraud argument still gets trotted out, it's almost as if 
the backup argument has become the primary argument, which is, you know, which is twofold, which is one, any instance of voter fraud is too much mm-hmm. because the, the, the system has to be, you know, essentially, you know, pristine, uh, you know, virtuous as Caesar's wife. Is that the, the I don't, the I don't know that one. <laughs> um, you know, but also I think, you know, and, and, and more subtly in a little bit, Oddly, you know, oddly new is that we now there is now evidence of voter fraud, or there's now evidence that people believe that the system does not have integrity or is not secure or can't be trusted. And we have to go the extra length just because people have those beliefs, even though those beliefs have been cultivated based on the initial. Right. False claims that we're now kind of abandoning because they just the evidence is just never there, and this is why, you know, there's this kind of it's a, it's you know, th- there's an odd dynamic here in which you know the very the, you know these beliefs, just the beliefs, whether they're they're founded or not in any empirical reality, are enough to serve as a ground for all of this. And that's why I think the public opinion numbers become important, but they come important from my perspective, you know, in a kind of unfortunate way in the sense that the evidence is now people's beliefs in something that never happened rather than the thing itself that one would hope those beliefs would be grounded in. You know, it's funny. I, it's, I have a note here because as we we're you know coming to do this podcast, I was thinking about my thoughts on this and I came at it from a different angle, but get to the same place. And it's funny the way you describe it. It's sort of war on terror-esque. In that there's never there, there's never an end to the war on terror, right? Because how will you know as a policy matter, how would you know when the war on terror is 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 ended? The same is true of election integrity. Ultimately, that elections will never be have one hundred percent integrity. I don't really you know I mean I don't really know what that means. Ultimately, people will make mistakes. Sometimes on you know sometimes people will do things you know purposefully shady. Sometimes not. The point being, there's no systemic fraud to underlie the basis of it. But if fraud is your target as a policy goal. There's no clear end game given that there's no fraud to stop in the first place. Yeah. Right. So by shifting it to election integrity, you shift it to some sort of amorphous positive good that ultimately you can always make the system, you know, you can always use putting more integrity into the system as a rationale for making stricter laws around voting because underlying this all is the assumption that has been cultivated, you know, know, let's just say almost primarily among Republican voters that the system is rife with fraud. Right. Well, but I see, I, I guess what I'm thinking now is that we've all, we've almost moved on from the object being the fraud mm-hmm. to the object being people's trust in the system. You know, and I think, you know, I think we had a, I have a quote in my notes somewhere from, you know, something the governor said to that effect that, you know, we have to make sure that people's trust is restored. And that's, you know, sort of the direction we need to move in. And it, and it just, you know, it, it, in, in an odd way, it's almost surrendering on the initial fraud claims. Well, but, you know, and kind of going, but now we are where we are and, you know, people don't trust the system. Who knows how that happened? But we really got to, you know, we really got to shore up trust, you know, even if, you know, I mean, you know, some of the coverage, I mean, you know, and, and uh, you know, the governor's been asked this as he's been talking about it. And he said, yeah, you know, we haven't really found much, but, you know, we still have to make sure that people have faith in, in democracy. Well, and the thing is, I think and that, I don't, you know, 
Yeah. And, and that gets to the perpetual war thing you're talking about. I think the difference between the war on terror is that, you know, the war on terror, you had at least, you know, a 9-11. There's never been an election 9-11 in this country. And to I don't know, Jim. And to that extent there was, you know, it it really wasn't about election fraud. So, you know, so I, you know, so there's an interesting (laughs) kind of dynamic that's going on here. I I think that is, you know, (laughs) you know, and again, this will make you, you know, but it's obvious, you know, to me, it's another one of those instances where, you know, you sort of, have, you know, the shadow of some actual thing that really was never there, but it still serves as the, as, you know, as something that instigates all of this action. And, and I think we should also, you know, I mean, I, and something else I've been kind of grappling with is that that, that argument also in an odd way, you know, is going to speak to, speaks to Democrats. Right. Now, the actions don't, the legislation don't, but if you, you know, but if your point is you should have trust in democracy and the process should be, you know, and and you're willing to use the words and the language of, you know, fairness, um, you know, our data also show that, you know, Democrats are not without their doubts of the system. They're just fundamentally different doubts based on different historical experience and different and a, a different level of or, you know, a different kind of concern. And we see that in our data too. Right. I mean, just to, just to hand wave at that for a second. Right. So, I mean, overall about 90% of Democrats trust the accuracy of both U S and Texas, Texas election results, a slight majority, 50% want the election laws made less strict about another third would leave them alone. Uh, but, you know, going back to October of the election year, 83% of Democrats said that eligible voters being prevented from voting. So basically some sort of voter suppression would be a serious problem in the 2020 election, which was a near mirror image of the 81% of Republicans who said that, pe- that, that people voting who are not eligible would be a serious problem during the election. But I mean, you know, the thing is, I'm thinking about what you're saying about this and what's, and it is interesting in the sense that, you know, if, if we do shift the language to one of election integrity, which in and of itself is a message tested phrase to, you know, which is really who's, I think the goal of which is actually to shift away from this focus on non-existent fraud, probably towards something that everyone can get behind. I mean, ultimately, you know, as pollsters, we know who is going to be against integrity. I mean, right. generally speaking, you know, if, if, if you say people, security are, for that, yeah, part. are you for security? Are you for integrity? The answer is yes. Ultimately it requires a pretty sophisticated person, you know, generally to understand that maybe they don't, uh, support integrity in the way that you mean it. Right. But ultimately I think, you know, there is a, an aspect to this. that's kind of interesting that you're raising. I'm thinking about now, which is, you know, when push comes to shove and let's say these laws get, you know, passed, which there's a very good chance they will, and it'll make it slightly more difficult to vote in a state that it's already pretty difficult to vote. in. we have some of the lowest voter turnout in the country. We have some of the strictest laws in the country real quick, going back to what you're saying about the national coverage. I think I'm a little bit jaded because, you know, these are actually, I mean, not, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate it, but relative to a lot of the laws that have been passed related to voting in elections in Texas in the last decade, these are relatively minor in terms of what they would do to restrict voting, at least on, on their face. Now, that raises a question, right? If we say, well, look, if we're talking about election integrity, not voter fraud, we want to create a uniform system where elections in one county in Texas are held the same way as elections in other county, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, a fair reading of that that says that is a, a reasonable goal. 
right? And that you know each county shouldn't basically be running elections however it wants. However, we know from the poll- same polling data in February that Republicans as a group find it easier than anybody else to vote in the state. 76% of Republicans say it's very easy to vote in the state of Texas. The only group that's even close, and I think this is the point, this is the key point here, 75% of rural residents say it's very easy to vote in this state compared to 54% and 59% of urban and suburban residents, respectively. Ult- you know, ultimately, if these laws create longer lines in Harris County, in Dallas County, in Travis County, uh, in Bear, right? And election nights routinely feature long lines in urban parts of the state with mostly non-white voters waiting and hoping to cast their ballots. Or if we see, you know, uh, uh, let's say turnout discontinuities, you know, after passage of these laws, let's call it, that's a, isn't that a nice way to put that? It's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Artful. You know, I think, you know, the question is going to be, is, is this, you know, does that, does that election still look like it has integrity? And I think, you know, in a state like this, where again, the share of the rural population is shrinking. The share of the non-white population is growing. The share of young, diverse Texans living in and around urban areas is only going to get larger. And nothing that Republicans do about the voting rules is going to change that, but it's going to make some of the glaring discrepancies in the way these laws end up actually getting applied even more glaring for national media and others. And so I think there is sort of a, a losing end to this or a point at which, you know, I think your point is right, which is going to be greater opportunities for Democrats to say, yeah, we're for election integrity too, like making sure that everybody who wants to cast a vote and has the legal right to do so can. And that's going to be a hard right. argument to, and that's going to be a hard argument for Republicans to argue against. And especially at a time when Democrats are probably going to be becoming more competitive in the state, not necessarily in the next cycle, but in the next few cycles, let's say. You know, and, and you know, although we, you know, we sort of see where the, you know, that that discussion is going to go. I mean, to go back and kind of flip the order of some of the data you discussed earlier. I mean, you know, on one hand, you know, uh, you know, a big majority of Republicans say that it's very easy to that it's easy to vote in Texas. That it's very, you know, that it's very easy. In fact, I think 76 percent of Republicans say it's very easy. But then, you know, you look at that in the context of a big chunk of those Republicans who also say the laws should be more strict. Right. And I think that intersection is kind of is key in in the last results that we saw. I mean, that kind of is the thing that really begins to to underline how all this discussion is really received differently depending on 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 partisanship. So, you know, speaking of partisanship, so as we, you know, as we wind down you know, I, I want to get, you know, meta for a second. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, and we've talked about I, this offline before. I live in the meta. <laughs> I find this uh, South meta. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's a, there's a, I, for some reason, I found that very funny. I don't know why. Um, there's a problem of being trying to be fair and even handed that I think has been woven through this discussion as with some others, you know, but I think that, you know, the, you know, there's a, there's a real sort of difficulty in this that I find kind of, you know, you know, both unsettling and I'm always grappling with it and talking about this publicly, but that I think is real and that this is one of those areas where false equivalency is a real, is a real threat. Mm -hmm. That in the, you know, in the effort to be 
even-handed and nonpartisan and fair, you know, there are a couple of very sticky things here, which is one, you know, as we keep saying, and, and I, you know, and I think that, you know, we've kind of stumbled on a way to talk about it, you know, to kind of talk around the problem it's so far today is that, you know, there's not a problem with the electoral system in terms of voter fraud. Mm-hmm. Or dysfunction. It's just you know the system is not perfect, and the voting system ne- ne- has never been perfect. And we've talked about this several times on this before, you know. But the you know the idea that you're going to really just get everybody to get behind some notion of widespread voter fraud is just a dead jam. I mean, there's just nothing there, mm-hmm. right? Been trying to find it, can't find it. You know that argument was pushed further than it's ever been pushed before in the last election by the ally or the president and his allies. And it still came up with nothing. Right. You know, and then there's, you know, having to take seriously the fact that, you know, only very rarely and usually accidentally will Republican sponsors of legislation like this say, look, this is about preserving our advantages. When, you know, it's, you know, it's almost impossible to look at most of the the groups that are most highly targeted by these kinds of, of measures, even the, the, the kind of pointillist ones we've been talking about, you know, that it's not going to, you know, have the most impact as you were kind of implying in urban areas you know, among people of color, among younger people, um, among non-rural populations. Among wage workers working hourly. Around wage, exact wage worker, you know, that's another excellent one. And so I don't, you know, I mean, I think that really just hovers over all of this in a way that makes it, you know, difficult to discuss. And, you know, and, and I think that, you know, I would give Republicans credit for sort of achieving a certain amount of judo with this in that, you know, the, they've developed rhetorical tools to just sort of turn that back on on their critics in a way that, you know, has has been a successful deflection in a lot of cases. And, you know, these things wind up getting passed and they don't, you know, they don't they either stay in force or they don't get resolved, you know, until, you know, after years of court battles by which, you know, people have moved on to new means, new technologies, et cetera. I mean, the voter, the voter ID discussion is a, is an interesting example of that. Right. I only say that because it went on forever. Yeah. And, and, you know, and if you look at some of the legislation, there's still some ID, some identification things buried in some of these proposals. You'll, you'll see them as I was going through all the stuff ad nauseum, you know, that ID provisions are going to come up again. Um, so I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I'm flagging that. I don't really, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a really fascinating piece of this, you know, and, and in the past six or eight months or in the past year, you know, the person, not surprisingly, who got caught saying the, the quiet part loud was in fact, uh, the, you know, the former president, right. Who, you know, who right. on tape at some point, you know, said, Hey, look, you guys got to do, you know, you got to push this stuff or Republicans are never going to win again. Well, I was going to say even further, I mean, really the most, the most clear evidence of fraud that we've, or attempted fraud we've seen in this election comes from, you know, that same president basically telling the Georgia secretary of state to find him the votes. Yeah. I mean. Attempted fraud. (laughs) I guess he didn't succeed. So that's good. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, but I mean, you know, yeah. So I think that's a real, you know, it's a, it's a real 
you know, it's a tough thing about this. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, you and I were commenting, we won't name any names or even publications that, you know, we were reading something that came out in the last few days, mm-hmm. you know, that was an account, kind of a table setter for these bills coming up Monday it was, you know, pretty egregiously, you know, I thought, um, in the tank and critical of Republicans and, you know, and it, and it was not so much the reading of the evidence as it was the language it was used and the lack of, you know, you know, sort of. But, but but that's that's the but that's that's the key point here, right? It's hard to talk about this in a fair and serious way uh, that doesn't bring up, you know, discussions of adherence to democratic norms, at least. Yeah. And if not, you know, and honestly, if not, let's say, you know, partisan advantage certainly, but also racism and yeah, you know, you know, I'll just say racism. And ultimately, yeah, and, and, you know, fundamental, yeah, fundamental issues of fairness. Right. And, race, and so once you but, bring that up, I mean, the problem is, is that, you know, I mean, just, I mean, you know, it, it takes the discussion into, an, it takes, makes the discussion go into another turn that I think is, is pretty easy for a lot of people to tune out who don't want to hear it. Right. Right. Well, and, and fuels, you know, it, it, it winds up fueling the discussion that you can, you know, that, you know, the media is in the tank for the Democrats. Well, yeah. Or that the, 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 detra- cetera, or the detractors are just being partisans for the other side. Right. And that it's, and they don't really care whether elections are safe or not, you know, just go back to the, or, or, you know, honest. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a problem that's yet to be licked on this. And I, you know, and I kind of understand, I mean, to use the term that's kind of gets overused now, I'm kind of tired of, but nonetheless, you know, in these pieces where people are, you know, journalists are writing, you know, and often very good journalists are just kind of kind of piling on saying, you know, essentially for lack of a better term, like this is all, you know, voter fraud is bullshit. You yeah. Know, these people are just trying to, um, you know, you sense a kind of an almost like anger and fatigue at being gaslit for so long mm-hmm. that for years and years of having to go, well, you know, write that, write that paragraph that says, even though, you know, there right. have been many claims about f- combating voter fraud, there are very few doc, you know, and you just, you know, I mean, I myself sometimes get to, it's like, oh yeah, you got to put this in here. Right. You know. Republicans say um, this. Democrats yeah, and, and, say and this. I think that's, and I think that fatigue is out there and I'm not making an excuse, but as an explanation, you know, for, you know, I mean, I think it's up to, and frankly, it's up to an editor to catch that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, but I think it's why those stories sometimes are, 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 you know, we're seeing more of those stories. You know, I read it. I read an article today. Joe Strauss sat down with Evan Smith and basically, you know, uh, on this topic said, you know, that this is a losing strategy for Republicans in the long run. And I think, you know, um, one, it's, you know, nice to see any Republican kind of acknowledge some fault with a strategy. But I would say, you know, they're staying in the meta. There is, you know, I mean, there is something we say, like, look, you know, like, just take your step back for a second. And let's just acknowledge that this makes it harder for people to vote. Most of these provisions, most yeah. of the provisions we're talking about over time, it certainly doesn't make it easier. It certainly makes it more challenging and it makes it more challenging for some people than for others. Right. Ultimately in the long run, you know, resisting, restricting, or removing fundamental rights or freedoms from people is never going to be popular. Yeah. I mean, there's just sort of a, there's an aspect to this, which is, you know, and we said this before, but you know, there's no clear end game to this. I think you're right. I think, you know, you've, you've made me update the way I think about it in the sense, you know, there's no clear up game because you can't ultimately stamp out something that never existed in the first place. So you just have to keep going if it's just about perception. But on the other hand, in this case, of well, you have to turn it into something else. Well, and that's what they've done. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, you know, but I think, you know, and I think there's a little bit of a great, you know, to me, you know, this is, is, is totally as a public opinion. This is, you know, sitting in my seat as the, you know, as a pollster, or public opinion researcher, scholar, whatever you want to call it. Like, 
you know, there's a bit of a grace period, I think, right now. You know, now we've seen this with other stuff before. When voter ID began and people said, hey, do you think, you know, we should have voter ID? Do you think people should present an ID at the polls? Honestly, universally, people said yes. This included Democrats, yeah, including Republicans, Democrats. independents, African-Americans. Once it became clear uh, to Democrats. Did we say in the beginning, just to clear, I mean, we're talking like 2010. Yeah, I'm talking like 2010, <laughs> 2000, 2009, 2010 2009, 2010. Yeah, you had majority African-American support in Texas for voter ID laws. Ultimately, once it became clear that voter ID laws were not about necessarily stamping out fraud, but about really regulating who could vote, right, based on the types of IDs that people have, it flipped. It became right. It flipped among Democrats. It flipped among Democrats. It flipped dramatically among African Americans. Right. And it became a mobilizing, you know, I would say a mobilizing feature of President Obama's successful 2012 reelection campaign was highlighting, you know, especially among African Americans, the threat they faced from these sorts of voting restrictions. Ultimately, I don't see how we don't head in a similar direction with this. I think, again, we're in a gray period right now where the term election integrity, again, is something that, you know, if you don't know what it means or don't know what it implies, why would you be against it? And honestly, that's what a lot of people respond to in surveys sometimes. Yes. That's going to change. And, and, and I think the voter ID, you know, empir- you know an empirical question, but, yeah. you know, I think, and I think it's, and frankly, I think it's evident in the data we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. To some degree that, you know, what you're calling a grace period, in other words, this kind of catch up, you know, I would think of it as kind of a catch up period sure. where, you know, the elite, you know, democratic opinion leaders and elites, you know, kind of catch up with mm-hmm. what's coming from the other side, um, you know, is likely to be shorter. Yeah, I think so. Well, now, you know, yeah. it's the, the baseline, it could, you know, they're going to have, they're going to have, you know, less far to move. They're going to need to move less, fewer people, and they're going to need to, and they'll, it'll take less time to move them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of, you know, and we're seeing that. I mean, you know, people like Stacey Abrams has become a, yeah. a, a national figure based in part on, you know, the, the the receptivity to this argument. It's become one of the fundamental axes of conflict between the party. And I mean, you know, and I think. The truth is, you know, someone who studies politics, I think we should all be nervous about that. Yeah. We don't, that's not a good thing. <laughs> I mean. No, I think that's right. And I, and I think that, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, in a much more trivial sense, that's a good, I should just end it there, but I, I, I can't because <laughs> I, I've got this in my Do head, it. which is. I want to hear it. Well, from a Texas point of view, you know, if not for Georgia, Texas would probably be in the forefront of this discussion. And, you know, right now, Georgia is. The example, and it's the example in part because Georgia has been so pivotal this election cycle anyway in both presidential politics and especially mm-hmm. obviously in the Senate special elections. But I think there there is – I'm, I'm fairly sure – I'm fairly convinced and I only have to convince myself that – so that's easy. Yeah, but, you're good at that. <laughs> that. That you know that if Georgia, you know, was not where it was in the political universe right now, and were they not pushing so hard, that Texas would be the key exhibit in this in the way that they were with the voter ID law. Yeah, you know, I agree with that. Ago. So, with that, uh, thanks for being here, Josh. Thanks to our crew in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Thank you for listening, and we will be back next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.